Hey, good morning. I want to welcome those in the auditorium. I want to welcome those who are in the overflow, those watching online. Uh, just a couple family items. One is I want to let you know that, man, Dan Seaborn's a good friend of mine. Uh, he's going to be doing the marriage thing in a couple weeks. And uh, he is a gifted communicator. I mean, I promise you, this is not like come and like, you know, have warm, fuzzy time. This is like, this is a great, he's an entertaining guy. He speaks truth. And uh, I encourage you to sign up to be part of that weekend with us. It's going to be phenomenal. Uh, also, on a kind of a couple weeks ago, we, we didn't mention it last week. We sent out in the Come Alive News. But a couple weeks ago, uh, we have a mission partner named Rupak Shankar. And Rupak has been part of the Alive community for 17 years. I actually knew Rupak before I came here to start Alive. And um, Rupak was part of a ministry we had in North Carolina. So uh, he and I have been friends for a long, long time. He has the same, their family's the same makeup as my family. Got two girls and the boy, you know, and about the same age. Uh, last week or two weeks ago, we found out that his wife uh, passed away uh, from some kind of heart complication that took place. And as you can imagine, Rupak and his family are, are devastated. Uh, many of us have been in Rupak and Angela's home. Some of you have been there uh, in a missions trip or whatever. And they're just, man, salt of the earth people. If you're not familiar with Rupak's ministry, it's all, he, he ministers all up along the Bhutan-Nepal border in northern India, and every one of the churches he pastors, are, they're martyred people. It's a martyred, martyred Christian group. And so um, what we've done is we've set up a place on our, on our website. You can go there and you can send a message to them to let them know you love them, praying for them. And if you decide you want to send a gift, you can do that as well. But really, uh, let them know you love them. I mean, I can't explain to you. Uh, when I was in India years ago, um, I was talking to some guy and said something stupid, like maybe one day you can come to America and that's never going to happen. He's, he pointed to the sky, he said, I don't have the power. And so what I learned in the context is, you know, when, when Rupak finds out the alive community is praying for him, it makes him feel he's going to get through it. So if you take a moment, send him a note, I'd, I'd really appreciate that. So Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. And thank you for these great people. I pray you'd help us over the next few moments um, to identify why we were all here. Now, all of us for different reasons, but why did you bring us today to this moment in time? And so in order for that to happen, you're going to have to speak really clear to us. So we, we invite you to do that in your name. Amen. I'd say probably uh, the, the one thing that really drew me initially to Christianity was this possibility that I could be different. That, that I could be transformed because I, I really didn't like sort of what was, I was becoming and I didn't like kind of the mistakes of my life. And so I thought, man, if I could be different, the possibility that my marriage could be different, my home could be different, my, my, my parenting could be different, my identity could be different, where I find self-esteem, all of that could be different sort of lured me. And, and, and that's one of the hopes of Christianity is that there's transformations ava available. In fact, last week we read it in our story. You remember Jesus met the woman at the well, he said, those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. There's a great description of what Jesus in you looks like. It's a bubbling spring. So turn to your neighbor. Do I have a bubbling spring? No, don't, don't do that. I mean, that's kind of what it is. It's this bubbling spring. And it's not just John. It's not like just in one place. There's actually in a lot of places. This is one of my favorite ones that Paul wrote in second Corinthians. All of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us, transforms us more and more like him as we are changed, transformed into his glorious image. So if you want to know what the whole goal of Christianity is, tattoo that bad boy to your arm because that's it. That's the goal of Christianity. That's what we're trying to do. You know what else that means? 
God's not finished with me yet. Turn to your neighbor, give him a whirl. Tell him, God's not finished with me yet. Tell him, say, God, nobody say amen, okay? Just, just stay with the, the script. God's not finished with me yet. And that's what that means. And so if we're honest, many of us sort of made a mess of our lives through a season of our lives and some times and years of regret and, 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 and at least saw the potential for it. And so we thought what drew us to Christianity was this theme, I can be different, I can, I can be changed. And so last week we introduced... Uh, uh, this whole new series, this idea of life being a story. And we said, when everybody's born, they're given a name and a pen. And then you start writing the chapters of your life with your decisions and your relationships and all that kind of stuff. And so we asked ourselves this question, everybody's writing a story, but is it a compelling one? Everybody that you know is writing a story, but is it a compelling one? And to help answer the question, we asked you to finish this sentence this week. I exist too. And kind of come up with some kind of vision statement for a life. Some idea of what reason God is changing you. So now that's, that's where we've been. So if you've ever decided to change something, if you've ever decided to kind of be different or to allow something different to happen, you know that is a whole lot easier to preach than it is to do. Amen? Like, man, Tom, sounds real good from where you're at. You know, I, I get that, I man. But you go in here and try to change what's going on. You think, well, this is never going to happen. And, and many of us have had the experience of being in a service or a small group or deciding to be better. And immediately when we make that decision to be better, you know what happens? We run into a wall. We run into some kind of obstacle that thinks, man, screw it. I don't care if I'm better or not. I'm just going to forget about it. Just, I don't care. I'll give you an example. I got to go to the doctor in a couple of weeks because um, I got to have that, the blood work thing that happens when you get old. And so you got to have the blood work, you know, and you got to go to the doctor. So last time I was at the doctor, and just for clarity, Lisa's not my doctor because that would be creepy and weird, but she's not my doctor. So, so, so I, I go to like a, a different doctor. And so uh, last time I went to the doctor, the doctor said, hey, Tom, you're looking great, but uh, he didn't say you look great. I'm, I'm adding that. He said... Really what he said, you could be better. Uh, and then he said, I need you to lose some weight. He said, and I told you all that when he told me that. He said, he needs to lose some weight. And so I've been looking for a new doctor, you know, ever since that, that visit. But, but like any normal person, I sat there and said, you know what, doc, you're exactly right. I agreed 100%. And so now that I'm five weeks from my appointment, I think it's about time I do that, you know, I mean, because it's, it's been long enough. And so, and, and believe it or not, I'm deeply motivated by the fact that this guy doesn't know I ignored his, his advice for five months. And uh, for some reason, I wanted to think, I'm, like I'm cheating, I'm stepping on the scale. Yeah, well, you told me to lose, you know, I just thought I'd take you seriously. But really, I just starved myself for four weeks. So nonetheless, that's kind of what's going on. I'm in that process and, 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 and eating less fried foods and, and eating worse tasting foods. And so that's the process. And, um, and here's one thing I've learned. Nobody eats a salad without dressing. Now, if you, if you do... Uh, that's fine. Just, just kindly remove yourself. But I mean, if uh, what I have learned is this, I think this, I think somebody invented salad so we wouldn't be embarrassed that we were drinking dressing. (laughs) So we just have a place to pour it. You know what I'm saying? Because we all know that's the best part of the salad is the dressing. So anyway, last Sunday evening, everything's been going great. So last Sunday evening, and if a pastor's going to sin, it's going to be on a Sunday. I'm just going to tell you that up front. So last Sunday evening, uh, all services were done, all that kind of stuff. Leach and I were home and I was sitting in my chair and I had a salad for supper and, 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 and just sat there in the chair. And then I waited. What was I waiting for? Well, I was waiting for Lisa to go to bed. Because I, I had something I wanted to do. 
after she went to bed. And so I sat in my chair and I listened for the bedroom door to close. As soon as I heard the latch connect, I stood up, told the dogs, don't say a word, and I made a beeline for the snack cabinet. Why, you might ask yourself, did I make a beeline for the snack cabinet? Because I had purchased and hid a bag of Ruffles cheddar and sour cream potato chips in the cabinet. So I sat in the room, in my chair, in the dark, like a grown man, and ate the whole bag. And it's like I was a teenager again. You know, I was like, and I listened. Yeah, ate the whole bag. And you know the funny part about it? Lisa has no idea until she watches the sermon this morning. <laughs> so I may need to go to the Super Bowl. If you'll have a party going on, I'll bring chips. You know, that'd be great. And we'll have a good time. So, uh, and there, I'll say all that to say this, is that, man, we all know obstacles. You decide you're gonna eat better. And then the next thing you know, there's a sale at Dairy Queen or, or something like that. You're like, oh man, or we try to be different in other areas. We, we try to be closer to God. And then you run smack dab into this intense season of trial or, or you wanna be healthier, you wanna exercise or you wanna be more compassionate. And then you find out that not everybody in the world's likable or we wanna be more loving or we wanna save more money and then the heater goes out. I mean, we wanna stop drinking, you wanna stop smoking. Smoking, all these things we decide to change and to be different, and inevitably we will run into this obstacle. Now, here's the thing so far, you agree with me. I mean, no doubt, everybody's like, Yeah, I know what obstacle. Sometimes, have you noticed, we will push through an obstacle, and then other times, we just roll over. Other times, we say, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm, we get derailed. And last, last week, many of us embraced God's compelling vision for our lives, and, and that was the deal. And some of us chose not to embrace it because we've tried it before and it didn't work. So, so here's the question that I want to go after today. What decides? What are the factors that decide whether or not we're going to push through whenever we hit an obstacle? Because there's some areas of my life, it doesn't matter what happens, I'm going to push through. And there are other areas, eh, probably not. I'm probably going to lose that one. So to chase down the answer, we're going to look back at the early, one of the earliest events of Jesus' ministry in the very beginning of his public ministry. Jesus is baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist, a whole crowd of peoples there, and his baptism takes place. Check out what happens after Jesus is baptized, brought out of the water. As Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart. Now listen, don't, don't, don't just, you know, the, you know this passage maybe, picture it. So the heavens split apart, Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven says, a voice from heaven, and I always figure it's James Earl Jones for you old school people, a voice from heaven says, you are my dearly loved son, and you, and, and you bring me great joy. Everybody heard it. Everybody. It was this miraculous, supernatural event. It was amazing. Everybody was like, wow, did you hear what happened? Everybody was posting on social media. Have you heard what happened? And, and, and many of us sort of kind of spend our days looking for kind of affirmation from our fathers. Jesus got it on that day. His heavenly father says, that's my boy. And I have his best artwork on my refrigerator and it pleases me, that kind of father. It was affirmation. I know what I've wondered just out of like tangentially. Imagine you were the next guy to be baptized. <laughs> you know, Jesus comes down and John the Baptist, like, Jesus, son of God, whom I'm well pleased. Next we have 
Brian, <laughs> Brian comes down, he comes out of the water like, and nothing, you know, <laughs> nothing. It gets that sympathy. Yeah, that's, that's great too, Brian. You know, but anyway, I'm sure, sure Brian has a special place in heaven. So Jesus is ready now to get to work. He's just had this moment with God. It's been amazing. And God has said, this is my son, voice from heaven. Everybody heard it. He had this compelling vision, but he was not, it was not immediately followed by getting to work. And this is the part I want you to hear. It's not like he had this amazing moment, this epiphany, and then now it's time to get to work. Because before he could go to work, Jesus had to go to war. And this is the part modern church has left out altogether. We think this whole thing's easy. Take two pills of Jesus and call us in the morning and everything's better. But Jesus goes to war. Who with? Satan, who is called, ready? The father of lies throughout the pages of scripture. Let me jump back into Matthew. I'll show you the story. Um, this during, 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 okay. During that time, no, yeah, during that time, the devil came and said to him, if you are the son of God, just for clarity, what just happened, I missed a verse. They did not mess up. I missed the verse because I'm thinking about potato chips. So that's what happened. During that time, the devil came and said to him, 40 days in the wilderness, if you are the son of God. So at this weakest moment, 40 days of prayer and fasting. After Lisa had gone to bed and the chips were calling his name. The liar shows up in Jesus' story. And you know what he lies about? Of course you do. Because it's the same thing he's been lying to you about. Each one of us. It doesn't change. He's been doing it since the beginning of time. Satan lies to Jesus about Jesus' identity, his worth, and his meaning. Satan goes after his brand new identity. Does that sound familiar to you? You get into a service like this, and I'm going to be better. I'm going to ask Jesus to change things. And you walk right out the door, and the thing falls apart. That's exactly what Satan does. Forty days ago, God said, you are my dearly loved son. But that moment is followed with God's silence and a trial. And the next voice Jesus hears is actually the great liar. You know what Satan is implying? I don't think you're the right person for the job. I'm not sure you really are the son of God. I don't think you are who God the Father says you are. If you're the right person, prove it. Please tell me that sounds familiar to you. Satan says, if you're the son of God, then tell these stones to become loaves of bread. It's not going to hurt anybody. Just do it. Who's going to know? It's just me and you. If you're really changed, let me see it. Prove it to me. Show me you're really changed. And the great temptation for him, the liar, was for Jesus to use his power to serve himself. The great temptation from the liar was for Jesus to use his identity to serve himself. Now, I have to confess, at this point in the story, I'm able to see how unlike Jesus I am still. Because I find myself sort of agreeing with Satan in the story. Jesus' whole reason for existence, though, is to serve other people. 
That's his identity, and he will never do an act that only serves himself. You can read all the Gospels you want, and you will never see an act that Jesus did just to serve himself. He doesn't, he never does it. The liar is saying, just serve yourself. Prove you're who you say you are. Jesus says to him, no, the scriptures say, people do not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is saying, that's not who I am. And my identity is to serve others and it will all culminate in a cross, the ultimate sacrifice. And then he quotes Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three. He's facing a lie with truth. There is something more important than me and my needs. Please hear me, modern church. There's something more important than me and my needs. What can be more, more important than me? Everything that comes out of the mouth of God. And I exist to serve him, not myself. Satan's not finished. The devil then takes him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple. He said, if you're the son of God, jump off. Scriptures will say he'll order his angels to protect you. They'll hold you with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. Satan is now using scripture to lie to Jesus. He's actually taking it out of context. It's Psalm 91 that talks about this whole idea of trusting in God as opposed to trusting in humanity. Psalm 90 covers that. Psalm 91 is sort of the antithesis of that. It's not meant as a call to test God, but more as a security for those of us who trust God. That was the purpose of the whole passage. And yet, once again, Satan has a really good point. Think about it. The temple was the known building. It was like the, the pinnacle of all architecture. It was the center of culture. So if Jesus would just jump off the pinnacle, save himself, in our terms, he would have went viral. People would have been posting it on social media. I mean, it would have spread like wildfire. Did you hear about the dude who jumped off the pinnacle and then all of a sudden, whoop, you know, he landed safely? Did you hear about that? but he doesn't do it, but he could have. That means he would have avoided dealing with the 12 guys that didn't ever get it right. He could have avoided the Sermon on the Mount, the exhausting trip on the stormy ocean. He could have done all those things, but he doesn't. He doesn't. This would have been a shortcut and the temptation all of us feel when it comes to Jesus, is to take a shortcut, to take the easy way out, and, and we all get it. But once again, Jesus quotes scripture, Deuteronomy 6.13. The problem is you don't test God because God is not a God of shortcuts. This isn't a faith that you come one service and all of a sudden you, you got it. That's not it. It's a relationship with God. So Satan's not going to give up. He tries one more time to throw an obstacle in Jesus' way. So next time, the devil takes him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I'll give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Why would that be tempting? Read the verse again. Look what he's going to get. If you'll do this, I'm going to give you everything, all the kingdoms of the word. I'm going to give it all to you. Now, why would that be tempting? Because that's exactly what Jesus wants. He wants everybody to know and love him so they will know and love God. 
The great liar is saying, you let go of God, step into my camp, I'll let go of humanity and let them walk into God's camp. Jesus quotes once again, Deuteronomy 6, 13. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. The scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil went away and angels came and took care of Jesus. See the part that's highlighted in that verse? I think we might be losing that. I think what we're starting to do, maybe in culture, is we're worshiping a God of tolerance, of anything. Oh, you got this idea? Oh, that sounds okay, as long as it doesn't bother me. And so that's become the number one thing, is like, let's make sure we worship a God of tolerance. And, and, and at all costs, let's make sure that whatever I say doesn't offend you. And yet what, what, what Jesus said to Satan is, we worship the Lord your God and serve only him. That's the only option. You serve only him. It'd been so much easier to do what he wanted to do, just like it's so much easier to kind of bow to this culture of tolerance. And Jesus says, just serve God and only God. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. It doesn't matter anyone else's opinion. Just serve God. Satan has an easier way. Hear me. It's not the best way. And you're seeing this played out as our tolerant culture is unraveling. Nobody knows where to hold a line anymore. And we all know it. We've all tried some of Satan's substitutes for love or identity or purpose or value or coping. We've all tried those different substitutes, but none of them ended up delivering on what they promised. Jesus had this compelling vision for his life, and then he ran into an obstacle. What a great vision. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. That's what my life will be. And then he runs into an obstacle. And I started with the question, what decides for us when we run into an obstacle, whether we push through or whether we roll over? Today we learn Jesus had relentless conviction. That, friends, is the defining mark of a true believer. Relentless conviction. That, friends, is what will separate Christians from culture. Not that we're standing out like a sore thumb. If that's what you want to do, you know, that's fine. Go ahead. But what separates us is our relentless conviction to God's word. Relentless means consistent or unwavering. Conviction means a deeply held belief. In other words, what separates the church is we actually have something we believe. We have something we believe in. Jesus was so crystal clear on what God said about him that he refused to let go of that truth. Pause. The reality is the people that we talk to and engage with, either they don't know what God says about them and who they are, or they don't believe it. But Jesus had such strong conviction and refused to let go of that truth in order to believe what anybody else said about him. So if you don't know who you are, if you have no relentless conviction when it comes to your faith, what happens is we're blown ebb and flow by whatever the culture's latest thing says about us. Do you get it? That's what's happening all around us. It's what culture says about the church or what culture says about politics or what culture says about COVID or what culture says, you just fill in the blank, I don't care. Because there aren't any people 
with relentless conviction anymore. Not like, you know, I'm, not, I'm speaking about relentless conviction in light of who God says we are. Before we do anything for Jesus, we're going to have to fight off some of the lies that have found a resting place in our homes, in our brains, in our identity. So if you wrote that vision for your life, you no doubt have these nagging obstacles in your mind already. That's a great vision for someone else because you believe you are not the right person for the job. It's an obstacle. Who are you kidding? You're not going to change. That's an obstacle. You have too many chapters written. Just go ahead and finish writing the book in complete failure. Stay on the trajectory you're on. That's an obstacle. You're not strong enough. Obstacle. Not smart enough. Obstacle. Too far gone. Obstacle. Damaged goods. Obstacle. God could never use you because you did this. Hogwash. It's a Greek word. But I mean, what in the world? Really? Here's my question. If God can't deal with that part of my life, then what's the value of God? And if you buy into any of these lies, here's what happens. You will quit. You just will. And one of the saddest, greatest burdens of pastor life is you will not only quit, but your past will continue to define your present and future because you're letting it. You've rolled over. There's no relentless conviction. Relentless conviction, friends, is not a natural gift that some people got and some people didn't. It's not whether you're tall or short. There's nothing you can do. It's just DNA. That's not what relentless conviction is. You can make this part of your life, relentless conviction. You can stand for what you believe and you can build an identity on what you believe and what is true by doing two things. One, identify the lies and two, replace the lies with truth. I'm not saying that's easy, but I'm saying that's the, that's the road. Identify the lies and replace lies with truth. So how do you identify the lies? I mean, everybody's sort of telling you who you are. You agree? Everybody in society has an opinion about who you are. You know, we'll be dingo, who cares? How do we know what the lies are? And I, I, I would say that we have these lies in our identity how do we allow the truth to sort of sift through those lies? And let me just offer you a guide, not original with me, but I think it's helpful. The Holy Spirit is always going to be loving and accurate. Everything else is a lie. Now, let me, let me talk you through this. You have to have both loving and accuracy. Understand, in a tolerant culture, we're told it's to be more loving. The problem is it's less accurate. Do you see? You have to, and the other side of it is this. The church is infamous for being accurate, but not loving. So you have to have both in your mind. If you have, right now, if you look on any news channel, any story, what they're going to show you is this side's mad and this side's mad. Agreed? <laughs> and what do they do? They're going to spit at each other. Neither side's being loving, neither side's being accurate. And that's defining our culture. It doesn't have to define you. You may have a lie that is accurate but lacks love. Lord knows we have a mess of Christians acting like that. That's not God. That's a lie. 
there are going to be moments when the Holy Spirit actually points out stuff that needs to change in you and me. But it will always be done in a loving way. Early on in my faith walk, I would try not to listen to the Holy Spirit. Ta-da. <laughs> I know. Why? Because it always made me feel so miserable, so condemned, right? Now at my stage in life, I, I invite that because it no longer feels like I will never measure up. Now it feels like, hey, we can do this. Hey, we can change this. Do you, do you, do you hear the difference? Am I by myself? Yeah, apparently I am. Okay, come on, guys. <laughs> I'm doing the best I can. Yeah. Hey, if it has condemnation attached to it, friends, it's a lie and it's not from God. God doesn't condemn. God never condemns. And if you feel condemned by God or the presence of the Holy Spirit, that's probably a lie. I'm not saying that what you're dealing with isn't a real sin, but you won't feel condemned. And Scripture's clear. There is no condemnation in this. Now, what God will do is he'll come like a heavenly father and say, hey, that needs a change. And you'll say, yeah, that needs a change. God is not and will not throw out hurtful accusations in your face. That's culture. That's not God. And unfortunately, sometimes that's churches. So how do we replace lies? How do we get these lies that come from the great liar? How do we do that? Well, in the face of lies, here's our game plan. It's the same one Jesus used. Replace the lies with truth. Now, I need to define this. See, don't just create a vacuum by removing all the lies of what Satan says about you. Because it's going to create this vacuum and all of a sudden, more lies will fill that space. Every time Jesus lied, is lied to in the desert, he immediately fires back with truth. From where? Ready? The scriptures... Now, I know that does not sell well in our culture because according to culture, all truth is relative. It depends on the context. It depends on the day. Not according to Jesus. Do you know Jesus was quoting scripture that was over 2,000 years old when he combated the devil? There was no, oh, culture's changed, therefore this must change. No. If the Son of God, friends, this is, this is going to hurt. So, if the Son of God needed to use Scripture, then what makes us think in our arrogance that we do not need to know the Word of God? Where did that come from? Where did we start thinking we were all that in a bag of Ruffles sour cream potato chips? What happened? Here's the thing, friends. There is no shortcut to discipleship. If, you're, if it's part of the vision for your life, the compelling vision for your life, there's no shortcut. If godly character is part of the compelling vision for your life, there's no shortcut to godly character. If holiness is part of the compelling vision for your life, there is no shortcut to holiness. There's, there's this hard work, not the work of healing yourself. It's the work of surrendering our stubborn pride to the healing balm of Jesus in a life. That's the work. And it doesn't happen in a hurry. Of course you're going to hit obstacles. Of course you are going to go through this process of sifting out lies with truth. My, the truth I believe today is so different than even 10 years ago. As more lies have been sifted out about who I am and the kind of husband I am, the father I am, the leader I am, the friend I am, who I am in God. 
It all is sifted out. It's this process. So here's what I want to do this week to kind of get preaching into practical. I want to invite you to begin this process with me this week. And so um, we're trying something. I want to give you some truth. So for the next seven days, beginning tomorrow, we're sharing with everybody who wants it, the truth challenge. If you want to text this truth to this this number. Now, here's get your phone out. You can do this, okay? If you don't want to do it, that's fine. Uh, But the reason we're getting your phone numbers is so we can sell them to Amazon. Actually... They've already got it, people. Don't worry about it. That's what I mean, they've already got your number. Don't, they, and they know it's in your cabinet. They've already sent me bags of Ruffles chips. So just, just there's a text there. Now, we're not going to do anything with this number. I promise you, I'm never going to send you a text that says, hey, uh, would you please send us some money? I'm never going to do that. Okay, not, not with this one. Maybe later, but not with, not with this one. So this one is only for the truth challenge. And I want you to send this text to the truth challenge to join. Now, now what do you get? So every morning when you get up, or hopefully when you get up, or when I, when I get up, whenever one of us gets up, uh, or someone on staff, we're going to send out a text. And in that text, there's going to be like a scripture. And under the scripture will be like two to three sentences of the meaning of that scripture, of the value of that scripture. And our discipleship people in their brilliance have actually started to build each day on top of the prior day as we shape identity. So here's the challenge. We're going to do that. If you want to do that, that's fantastic. We're going to do that. And then what will happen? Mark my words. Mark my words, you're going to read a certain truth that morning, let's say 8 o'clock, and by 10 or 10.30, something is going to come to you and tell you why that truth's a lie. Watch it. Try it. If you don't believe me, try it and just journal it, you know, just, and we'll build truth together. We'll identify truth. And just as an experiment for you to begin to understand what it means to allow the truth to sift through all the lies. Truth from God to fire back at the liar and begin to form and practice relentless conviction that means come hell or high water, on this we will stand. Relentless conviction. So next week now, we get to work. Lord, thank you for your goodness and thank you for these folks. Thank you for this moment with them. Uh, Thank you, Father, for the power of truth And Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you speak to us, reveal truth to us? I pray for all my friends. We're coming from all walks of life. We're coming from all journeys with you, all different journeys. And um, man, Lord, would you take us where we are and just move us forward to where you desire to be? Maybe some folks came in today and they're carrying a special burden, something that fell apart this week, their obstacle. And maybe something truth, a word that was sung or message, part of the message that was said, maybe something to just speak to their hearts. The scripture says, man, here's the truth. Be relentlessly convicted about that truth. People that feel like they're not good enough. Lord, that's nowhere in scripture. Nowhere in scripture. And yet it's a dominant belief in our culture. Lord, we pray against it. We pray against it. We ask for relentless conviction. I am a child of God. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am made in the image of God. That's truth. Anything else is a lie. I'm too far gone. There's no way God could ever use me, has any desire to me. I can cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. I've cast it into the sea of forgetfulness. Nowhere can you go and hide from my love. That's truth. So I pray you'd sift out the lies, the alive community, and allow us to be people of deep, confident, relentless conviction by the power of your spirit in us. In your name, amen.